Welcome to Artificially Intelligent Marketing, a weekly podcast where we stay on top of the latest trends, tips, and tools in the world of marketing AI, helping you get the best results from your marketing efforts. Now let's join our hosts, Paul Avery and Martin Broadhurst. Welcome to episode 11 of Artificially Intelligent Marketing. I'm here with my very good friend, Martin Broadhurst. How you doing, Martin? Oh, Paul, it's great to see you. I'm back in the saddle, ready to talk AI on a Friday afternoon. Still doesn't get any better than that, does it? We've got a bunch of really good stories to get through today. As always, we're going to go deep into a few topics. We're going to talk about a company called Causal, who used AI to generate a ton of content for their website and draw in a lot of traffic from search. Fairly controversial in many ways, so we're going to get into that. We're going to talk about some amendments to the uh, proposed amendments to the EU AI Act and what that would mean for both the companies producing tools, but also marketers as users of those tools. And we're going to talk about ChatGPT's plugin rollout to all users. We're also going to hear from uh, an industry colleague of ours, Liam Lally, who's a PPC specialist from Zaddle, who's going to input his expert opinion on the automated PPC debate that we had in last week's episodes. We'll get into that a bit later on and we're also going to look at uh tool of the week which this week is going to be the voice generation tool jenny and there's more we're also going to look at some short snippets from across the um worlds of ai and marketing um, and we'll do that before we get into everything else so let's take a look at some of those short snippets so a couple of quick things then um chat gpt is launching an iphone app um not massive news, but it's probably going to take the place of a few apps that sprung up in that space when ChatGPT and OpenAI weren't able to get into it fast enough. Perhaps the most interesting thing about it is that you can um, speak to it. So it will do transcription using OpenAI's Whisper. And in essence, you'll be able to talk to your phone and then get it to do some stuff for you. So that will start potentially to make chat gpt a bit more of a competitor to siri and um alexa and google assistant and those types of things the uh the biggest feature that they introduced in this that i was impressed with is the simple search functionality to be able to search your conversations rather than having to just scroll endlessly through your chat history you can search your conversations now apparently so i haven't tried it yet because i'm not on iphone and i'm not in america but apparently you can search your conversations. They'll have to bring that to the desktop app, surely. I mean, you would think you would think that's a given, but I would have thought it was a given having it from the off. <laughs> I guess this uh, chat GPT interface was developed by about four people in an afternoon, from what I understand. So um yeah. We should be amazed uh, with what we what we have, baby. Yeah. Maybe exactly. that, um, all right, well that's good. That'll be um I don't have an iPhone either, so I won't be playing with that anytime soon. But if anybody who listens to the podcast does get to have a play we'd love to hear what your experiences are hit us up on the linkedins and the twitters um meta is planning to create its own ai chip so they're joining google microsoft and amazon in the custom chip game one assumes because uh, they don't want to have to completely rely on other suppliers like nvidia um, but also because gpus which power a lot of machine learning research and also the the final tools that are, are launched uh, also run on GPUs, but it's likely that custom chips is going to be better. That is also connected to a story 
this week um, in Forbes about just how expensive it is to run these generative AI models in data centers. I think they were projecting that by 2028, the cost of running the models on data centers would be more than $76 billion. So I guess anything you can do to make that better, including custom chips, makes sense. I, when I saw that Forbes star story, mine, I was prompted to think to myself, uh, prompt being the iterative word, um, that if the product is free or near free, and these data centers are costing billions of dollars to run, then uh, then you are the product. So that might be something for us all to remember as we rush to leverage Bard and Bing, especially because they are free at the moment, and uh, even ChatGPT at its relatively low price. Yeah, and if you think about what they're getting from all of the feedback from users giving the thumbs up and thumbs down to responses uh, in ChatGPT, that is reinforcement learning from human feedback. That's something that they've trained the models on historically with people being paid 10 to $15 an hour. Now they've got the whole world doing it for for free. So uh, yeah, but, uh, I was going to say it's a cost saving, but I'm sure the, the GPU expense is slightly more than the uh, the wage bill for those humans previously. Yes. Well, that's certainly something they're getting out of it. Who else knows what other purposes they might have with the data that we share and the information and the experiences we're having with the tool. But I suspect that's a big chunk of it. Martin, I think you're right. Another news story this week was that um, Google's new medical AI, MedPalm 2, which Martin talked a little bit about last week, scored over 80% on a medical exam that a typical human would only get about 60% on. So that's pretty interesting stuff. And when we said a typical human, we are talking people trained on training to be doctors, <laughs> aren't we? Not, just like, not like me. If I did the exam, I don't think I'd get 60%. Yes. Trained people who understand and should do well on that test um, versus, say, a four-year-old or Martin. I'm not suggesting they're the same thing. No, no, no comparison <laughs> at all. Depends on the domain. No comment. Right, we'll move on. Um, there is uh, a general feeling that we've been sensing around the web that Palm 2, the Google's new model, is meaning that Bard is faster and provides better output. So there seems to be a fair bit of chat on the Twitter sphere, and it's certainly been my experience, and I think yours as well, mine, that it's better than it was. It also has a really cool new export to Gmail or GDocs button, which I really love, because if you then ask it to draft an email for you, you can click a button and it puts that straight into a, a new composed message for you in Gmail, which is pretty cool. Um, at the same time, it does seem that very creative things, um, like really interesting poetry and some of the other things that ChatGPT4 has been able to do, um, Bard is not up to that level when it comes to being creative. So we're drifting into, already starting to drift into which of the uh, models is best for what you're, or which of the tools is best for what you're trying to do? Because in general, Bard is a heck of a lot faster than ChatGPT4 as well. So it's sort of like horses for courses on that one. Um, many of you might have seen that Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI and other industry experts, spent three hours testifying before uh, the US Senate and that there was a general consensus that AI needs to be regulated but it's such a complicated issue. Nobody seems to be able to suggest a good mechanism of regulation that everyone thinks would actually work. 
So we'll all have to keep an eye on that. Um, and then there was a couple of other cool stories. Um, there is a company called Hippocratic AI, which has just received a, a ton of funding, I think $50 million recently, um, to develop an AI-driven platform to provide medical advice. So like WebMD, but driven by AI, co-founded by a team of physicians and hospital administrators, Medicare pros, AI researchers, etc. Um, so that's pretty cool. It's got some fairly um, significant and well-known investors, including uh, Andreessen Horowitz. So that might be something to keep an eye on, especially as the CEO of Hippocratic AI, Munjal Shah, has said that their tool outperforms GPT-4 and Claude in over 100 healthcare certifications. So we've just talked about how good MedPalm 2 is. That would imply Hippocratic AI is even better. So that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. There is another um, company that raised a ton of cash recently, which is Everseen, who raised $71 million for its computer vision that prevents self-checkout theft. I'm sure we're all used now to being a number of places um, you know, for example, supermarkets where we go through the self-checkout, but they have this cool new um, computer vision tool to make sure that all the things that you're walking around with and that you that you actually pass them through the checkout, which is pretty interesting. Um, so, yeah. I'll be stealing those carrier bags anymore. Yeah, carrier bags, chewing gum. How many carrier bags did you take? None. <laughs> yeah. Didn't use any. How many did you use today? Well, it depends. Like, how are you going to work it out? Oh, crumbs. Now you can um, so that's some short snippets from around the web this week. Let's, um, let's jump into this first story then, Martin, because uh, I think it's an interesting one. So a financial modeling SaaS startup called Causal successfully increased their SEO, their traffic from search to 750,000 visits a month using 100% AI generated content. So many, what feels like years ago, but it's probably mere weeks or maybe a month at best. We talked on the podcast, Martin, about generating content at scale with, with um, ChatGPT and other tools and with the quality of the content and would Google and other search engines basically penalize you for having um, AI um, generated content. And what this would imply is at least in this case, the answer is no, presumably because it's too hard for them to detect that it's AI generated or that not that much time has gone by for Google to actually identify it and other search engines and do something about it. The way that they did this is that they identified a bunch of topics with high potential keywords, chose six of them, and then created thousands of pages targeting those keywords at scale using a tool called by word so that that was their strategy uh, then they put it all up on a website and did all the usual things to ensure that it was the website was technically optimized for you know, all the other things that google and other search engines would expect in order to rank a website on search engine results pages um it's proven to be highly effective so far and then the key question i think for us to debate here martin is with the success of this approach by causal the fact that byword is a tool that anybody 
can now go and use to create AI content at scale, presumably. I'm going to put a massive asterisk on that even before we start our topic, our debate, is will there now be a race on for brands to try and generate as much content as possible and throw it up on their websites to see if they can reproduce what Causal did? So what's your thought on this story, Mine? I think the race started a while ago and and this is just one of the first examples that we're likely to see in the coming months um from reading the case study i think they chose a few interesting uh, approaches it looks like they did kind of glossary index pages that then linked out to subtopics and and so on so so there was a bit of thought into how to structure the content at least and i think you know if we go back to the question that you or the idea that the search engines haven't yet discovered or found a way of identifying this as AI content. I think Google have been quite clear so far is that they don't really care as long as the content is is helpful and relevant. So if it's passing some authority check, and if we look at the kind of tools out there, say authority, um, kind of relevance or topic depth, you know, they have their sentiment analysis and um, semantic frameworks that's sorry sentiment analysis is completely the wrong phrase there that kind of semantic graph that says okay is these are the, the topics if you want to rank for this thing these are the topics you've got to be talking about to be an authority on this clearly causal have, have done their research there hence identifying those topics in the first place is this going to work for other people? I, absolutely. I think if you've got the the resources to invest in this, and it sounds like you don't need particularly deep pockets, um, you just need a bit of time to run the AIs and do a bit of the research up front and then post it into WordPress or wherever, uh, you will see big results. Will it last in the long term? That's the question. Uh, it, it strikes me that this is a... Uh, there is a limited window to, to make hay here. And that, I think, comes from uh, two observations. One is that everybody's going to be doing this. Therefore, Google will find other ways of um, ranking or finding signals. We know that Google has the EAT expertise, authority, trustworthiness, but they've also included experience in that. So it's now experience expertise authority and trustworthiness and the experience is looking for like real people that have real credibility in this space so you know things like podcasts and videos and speaking events and published papers these are all going to make a difference and you can't do that at scale um so that's going to become increasingly important and the second thing is there's a general question about how important seo or how um how impactful SEO is going to be with with that demo that we saw at Google AI, where quite literally <laughs> the, the generative AI, big green box on this Google search page, just pushed away the organic search results as if to say, you're no longer relevant. Yeah. That is going to cannibalize organic traffic for, for publishers. So sure, make hay while the sun is shining, but do not expect this to be a long-term sustainable strategy. Yeah, I'd agree. And I think we're back as well to just because you can produce a lot of content and get a load of traffic, even even if it's in the short term, 
you need that content to be speaking about the genuine pains and challenges and interests of your customers. You need to be able to, at some point, position the value of your offering. You need to be able to do something with that traffic and you need that traffic to be relevant. So at the very least, it can probably do a job at the top of the funnel to drag people to your website. But by the way, if those people are not the right people for your business, then in essence, is there any point in doing it at all for most brands? Question mark. But I think we both know what we think about that, Martin, which is that I probably wouldn't bother. Um, I think the other thing that's interesting about the tool is it's one of the more expensive content generators on the market. Um, so if you wanted to really do this at scale with basically unlimited credits, you'd have to spend two and a half thousand dollars a month, which is a lot more than, you know, the Jaspers and the copy.ai's and the go Charlie's of the world. And one of the things that actually lists in its monthly plans as a feature is detector evasion. So it's clearly trying to bake this, you can get away with this Google won't know into its USP. Well, that annoys me because the detectors themselves are just trash at the moment anyway. So as a selling point, I mean, yeah, detector evasion. I think you're just speaking out to, well, to be fair, you know, every time I speak to people about AI content, one of the big questions is, can it be detected by Google? Um, and I think people are unaware of just how many false positives and false negatives come out of these uh, detections. They're just totally inaccurate at the moment. Certainly not accurate enough for the search engines to be looking to actually deploy them into their, <clears throat> their systems at the moment. So, uh, but yeah, good on them if that's how they want to position their product. I can't, I can't comment on this product at all. I haven't seen it. I haven't used it. Um, but if this is working for that company, then uh, and, and I think to your point there, if this is driving traffic, great. You're then just moving on to the next part of the the process. How much of that are you actually converting? Yeah, and that's the interesting part of the story. Great if this is a SaaS company wanting to drive a lot of traffic, fantastic. But a SaaS company is not a publisher that gets paid per impression. A SaaS company gets paid on new subs. And that's the interesting part of the story for me. Yeah, which is the bit that we don't know, right? And it's um, certainly, dear listeners, we don't want this to come across as a byword. Bash, that was never the intent <laughs> of what we were intending from this discussion. Uh, it sounds like a powerful tool that at least one company has used to great effect. Um there, there's a gap in the market to, to do this type of thing. And I'm sure a number of other companies are doing something similar, just maybe not quite as sophisticatedly as perhaps Byword enables. And again, I haven't played with it either, so I can't say for sure. I still can't help but feel, and my recommendation would be, just because you can doesn't mean you should. And I'm, I personally, I wouldn't recommend to any of our clients to go down this route. I I still think that the the opportunity here is how can you create insightful content that can't be produced easily by by AI, by a bot, basically, because that's what's going to differentiate your brand and deliver genuinely interesting and valuable information to your audience, whether that's content that you create by interviewing your technical SMEs or working with your customers and talking about their use cases and applications of your products or whatever it may be i guess that's kind of b2b but um and then how do you 
leverage that content at scale would be a better question, I think, than how can I produce in a content farm style a load of content about a given topic, but the bot wrote it all and doesn't necessarily know what's going to be interesting over the next one, two or three years. Because at least as it stands, I don't think any of those bots are going to the key industry con uh, conferences and hearing from the key opinion leaders uh, speaking in the keynotes, right? So I still think that's where the magic is going to be in terms of brands being able to differentiate the content they produce. The other thing is doing cool things like industry reports, again, surveys and gathering insights about what's going on in your market that no one else can possibly know, certainly not bots, but probably none of your competitors either. Um, and then again, figuring out after you've done the hard work of doing the survey and analysis or whatever it may be, how do you then promote that as scale? And then I'm sure there are ways that you can use AI to write short summaries and create social media snippets and all these other things. What do you think, man? Yeah, exactly. The insight um, is is where the the value is going to be. Again, going back to the the Google Eat principle, uh, real insight, real people, real expertise, real authority. Um, that's ultimately where, in a world of AI generated content, the winners will actually be uh, created. Yes, I agree. Right, let's move on to our next story. Let's talk about this AI um, Act amendment within the EU that's proposed. We should be clear, not passed. Um, tell us about this, man. Yeah, so at the end of last week, uh, two European Parliament committees published the latest version of the EU AI Act, which we have discussed a few times in recent episodes. And there were some big amendments, really, because they'd received a lot of feedback uh, from the industry and from the community at large. And there were I would say four main takeaways. There's a really good article that will pop in the show notes from Lexology, which has done top 10 takeaways, uh, which we'll make sure we share. But in terms of the, I think the key implications that business owners and marketers in the EU need to be aware of, um, first of all, that there are higher costs and obligations for companies developing or using AI in the EU. These obligations in terms of reporting and disclosures are going to be uh, increased. And in fact, actually, the penalties for non-compliance are, are actually greater than GDPR. So the GDPR data breach and non-compliance fines were up to 4% of global annual turnover. Uh, this was 4%, uh, sorry, this was 6%, and I think it's been increased to 7%, I, I understand. So... Uh, yeah, the, the costs are quite big. There's a new definition of AI in there. So the EU has adopted the OECD, the OECD definition of AI, which is very much more focused on machine learning and deep learning networks. It was previously a somewhat overly broad range of software applications that were falling under the umbrella of AI, which software developers were not too pleased with, as you can well imagine. Um, one thing that is new is that the um, they... They've really increased the rights for EU consumers. The rules as it were, or the proposed legislation, didn't really talk about individuals and how individuals were affected. Whereas now, in this uh, amendment, individuals have the right to lodge complaints with supervisory authorities and to request explanations of decisions made by high-risk AI systems. Uh, that's a key part of this legislation as well. The EU is taking a risk 
based approach to regulation. So they're basically saying, we are going to regulate AI systems based on the level of harm that they could cause. Um, things that are related to healthcare or policing, you know, uh, these are the things that they're really going to clamp down on. Foundation models such as GPT-4 and the, the big generative AI foundation models, uh, these are being regulated, but they are not going to be classed as high risk. So that's a, quite a positive thing for us to, to recognize is that they're not going to be classed as high risk systems. However, this increased regulation around them uh, does have some uh, restrictions and requirements for the model trainers, the, the companies creating these models uh, around data governments. They've got to have increased technical documentation and there are going to be quality management systems and requirements to disclose things like the amount of copyright information that was used in the training of the models. So the companies have to be much more aware of all of that in disclosing various um, parts of the model and the use cases and things like that. One of the observation was that there are more obligations for deployers. Now, this is different from the company that's creating an AI model. This is someone that is deploying a model. If you're building on top of a foundational model, this would... Uh, this would, as I understand it, make you a deployer. Like a Jasper or a Copy AI or a GoCharlie or anything that's using OpenAI as its back end, basically. Yeah, exactly. And if, if you're deploying somebody else's model, so it's not just the foundation of models, any kind of AI model, you know, you're building on AWS using one of their, their models, you are a deployer. And, uh, deployers themselves now face increased compliance obligations. Now, this includes conducting a fundamental rights impact assessment and providing certain information to individuals affected by high-risk AI systems. Now, you might be saying, well, what does that mean? What are fundamental rights impact assessments? Now, in GDPR, there's a requirement to have a data impact assessment, which is all around, uh, I probably haven't got the terminology right there, but there's a, uh, if you're using people's data, you have to do an impact assessment about what would happen if the, if there was a data breach and you have to give high risks and what you're doing to mitigate the risks in high risk situations and low risk situations. What have you got in place to cover those kind of things? Now, this is a fundamental rights. This isn't data rights. This is fundamental rights impact assessment. So what are fundamental rights? It's difficult to kind of really pin down. And there's a few EU papers that cover this topic. I've found one from December 2022 that goes into this. And it identifies things like privacy rights. So uh, rights to personal autonomy, the sanctity of the home, uh, data protection does actually fall under that. Things like expressional rights. Um, so press freedom, commercial expression, right to assembly, right to vote, procedural rights, so the right to access a court, the right to a fair trial, uh, equality rights, which will be things like uh, right to equal application of the law to everyone to whom the law applies, 
And then socioeconomic rights, so equal access to healthcare, equal access to affordable housing, equal access to education, equal access to social benefits. These are fundamental rights uh, as they are relevant in an AI context. So you as an organization that is thinking of deploying any AI in your product has to be aware of that. And you have to think about, you're going to have to start thinking about a fundamental rights impact assessment, because if your product um, might be used for insurance, let's say you're doing healthcare insurance and it's assessing risk. You, that's going to be a really, that's going to be quite a high risk um, deployment of AI. If you're using generative AI, if you're, if you're Jasper, for instance, and you're, you know, you've got your open AI and various other models powered, uh, powering your product and your product helps people write better subject lines for email marketing and things like that. That's relatively low risk, isn't it? The fundamental rights impact is going to be very low. You're not probably going to have to report it create an extensive report on that. So yeah, that's a, I think that's a, a big consideration for business owners and marketers building with AI. Uh, generally speaking, I think this is a, it's a good thing. This is the world's first piece of AI regulation. And as you mentioned, Sam Altman has been at the Senate this week, speaking to the senators in the US about EU regulation, sorry, AI regulation, the EU is now actually kind of leading the way. What are your thoughts on, on this? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Firstly, I'm glad I have you here, Martin, because when these changes are made, my brain struggles with all of the ins and outs of what this information means. So uh, hopefully this, I'm sure, is very useful for all our listeners. But it's even just useful for me to hear you describe it because then I understand it better. I think as a marketer, I think, A, I can see a lot of products and services getting AI augmented. And so product managers and marketers need to be aware of what's going on inside their products. Um, even if it's for things like crisis comms, right? If you're in a comms team and you, you need to have a plan in place for how you're going to deal with any issues that come up with how your uh, AI-driven tool is now no longer meeting the requirements of this uh, of this legislation, assuming it goes through. I think more broadly, if I'm a marketer, one of the key questions I'm asking myself and one of the key questions I field is, what tools should we use? How should we roll them out? That type of thing. I think it's a really difficult question to answer. We've talked about it many times on the podcast and, you know, it's a temptation to wait for big companies to just roll out broad tools like Google in its workplace um, and it's um, apps like Google Docs and Gmail, et cetera, and Microsoft Copilot, just because there's a sort of trust you have in those organizations that it's going to make it easy to roll out and train. But if not, you're investing in tools that you have to embed in your organization. You have to make them a part of your processes. You have to train your team on them. And then what if this legislation impacts one of your suppliers in a way that means that they can no longer provide the tool? Or they can, but the costs of meeting the requirements of this and other legislation quadruples the cost of it, right? Or the what functionality is... changes because there's certain aspects of the tool that they just can't even offer anymore until this stuff is figured out. So there's a bit of a wait and see mindset that I see a lot of people starting to take in terms of crumbs. I want to start rolling some of these tools out in my organization, but 
what if some of those things happen? And of course, it's legislation like these that could kickstart shutdowns and pauses and functionality changes and etc. We're already seeing the EU's moves in this domain have an impact, right? So BARD, for instance, has different functionality in the rest of the world than it does in the EU. And it has been speculated that this is a bit of a, uh, you know, FU to the EU from F-U-E-U. Google. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to say that, you know, we're bringing out this cool new tech and you can't have it because you're we can't make it comply with your products and, you know, you're going to be left wanting. Whether that is the case or not, who knows? But, um, there, there, you know, there is functionality. The plugins that you get in Bard in the US and the rest of the world are not available to people in the EU at the moment. Just for clarity, the plugins in Bard or the plugins in ChatGPT? Plugins in Bard. Plugins in Bard. Yeah, the okay, extensions cool. in Bard. Yeah. Cool. I know that um, there's. Well, been I say a... plugins, the extensions, the additional features. Yeah, the, there's the, a, some yeah. extended capabilities. And you just can't get them. Yeah, yeah. I'd noticed that as well and saw some stories. Uh, attached to this as well is uh, just thinking about as a marketer or as a business owner, as anybody working in this space, one thing to be aware of is they have reduced the time for compliance. There was originally a three-year time scale to implement this, which uh, companies were saying was already too short, uh, and they've reduced it from three years to two years. <laughs> so if it was too short and you were whinging, you better spend less time whinging and more time acting because that timeline is ticking. Mm. Although what the world would look like in three or two years given the pace of change, is a, is another interesting question, I would say. It is. There's one additional point to this, though, that I just want to throw in. There was a story in The Guardian today. That, uh, so Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is out in Japan doing his talk, um, doing a kind of media press tour while he prepares for the G7 meeting. And when asked about AI, he said that... Uh, the UK will lead on guardrails to limit the dangers of AI, which is a stark contrast to the UK government's position in March, where they said they were going to take a laissez-faire approach to, e, uh, to AI regulation, enable to, in, to encourage and foster innovation and, and whatnot. But it turns out when a letter is written by senior people in the world of AI saying, well, we need, need to consider this, the UK government suddenly sits up and listens. I would suggest they probably don't know their arse from their elbow in this area, but what do I know? <laughs> they certainly um, seem a little confused, um, depending on who you ask, I guess. But um, I'm sure we'll see how that plays out over time. It has a bit of a, in the thick of it, yes, minister feel, um, that quote. Um, um, for those of you that I'm not familiar with those, very British sitcoms they lampoon um the inner workings of the uk government and um, in effect make it look like no one in the government knows what they're doing which again is not what we're saying here but certainly uh, an interesting parallel right thank you for that martin that's super helpful right last uh, detailed story of the week is that we're going to have a brief discussion about chat gpt plugins so we've talked quite a lot about these over the last couple of weeks maybe month or two since they were announced um, but it was pretty hard to get access to them. But this week, the lovely folks at OpenAI have been rolling them out to all of their users. Martin got access before me, which just 
annoyed me immensely and I didn't get out of bed for two days. But I also have access now, so I am joyous again. Um, if you are interested in having a play with these, you can access them if you have ChatGPT. I'm guessing you have to have Plus. We've both got it, Plus, Marin, yeah? It does require Plus, yeah. Yeah, I figured it might. So if you've got Plus, you can go into your settings and you'll see some new options in there that allow you to turn on the plugins beta. And then you'll be able to start leveraging the plugins when you're searching. It changes the way that you select the model you're using at the top. And that's where you can add the plugins. There are, I think, nearly 100 from my quick scan through of plugins with lots of different use cases at this point that you can have a play with. We did see um, a really interesting article from the folks over AI Marketing School where they actually took us through three really cool use cases using um, ChatGPT plugins for marketing. So just to briefly describe what they uh, talked about in their newsletter, which is uh, well worth signing up to, they used the plugin called Video Insights to be able to turn videos into articles so you have to install the video insights plugin and then um, you can go to youtube you can search for videos on a particular topic and then you can paste the urls of those videos and it doesn't have to be one it can be multiple ones and then ask ChatGPT to write a blog post or an article some sort of summary based on what they uh what the tool is able to pull out of those videos um and as the um as the team say, it's not perfect, but it can give you a pretty decent first draft um, and some ideas they suggest are things like turning a webinar into articles, social media posts and those types of thing. things. They make a note and we would massively second this. I think this is true of anything you do with generative AI. Double check the outputs, make sure it hasn't hallucinated in the middle of what it was doing, make sure it hasn't pulled in some materials from elsewhere that you didn't want it to pull in and all that good stuff. The second use case they talk about, which is pretty cool, is connecting it with Zapier, Zapier, um, which basically connect allows you to connect ChatGPT to any other app. So it's a bit like for, for um, Zapier users, um, it, Zapier is the great connector, right? Allows you to have a piece of data that's in one app trigger an action in another app. Um, so an example might be when a new contact it appears in my CRM, add them, add their details to a row in a Google Sheet, as an example. But now with ChatGPT, you can access Zapier's capabilities within the interface. So as they say in the newsletter, you can create emails or Slack messages and send them straight um, without leaving the interface. You can send data directly from ChatGPT to other tools like Google Sheets and, and Notion and those types of things. And you can push Things like if you're doing a brainstorm and asking ChatGPT for headline ideas or article outlines, those types of things, you can push them straight into a Google Doc. So that's pretty interesting. I think people will have to figure out where that really saves them time versus just like copy pasting stuff over themselves. Um, but I think it's a pretty interesting one. And then the last one that I think I probably like the most and definitely want to go and have a play with is the WebPilot plugin. So in this, they give an example of how you could use it to SEO optimize your content by, um, in essence, getting it to create an SEO strategy to outrank your competitors. So in the example that they gave, they asked it 
to scrape the top five search engine result um, results for the keyword using AI for marketing and give me a detailed SEO strategy to help me outcompete them. For example, include exact keyword density, um, comprehensive H2 outline for an article that contains everything these articles touch upon, plus anything you, that you feel is missing that they should have touched upon that will help me rank highly for this keyword. Um, and it's too long and laborious for me to read the output to you, but it's pretty darn impressive in terms of touching on the suggested keyword density, suggesting a really effective outline for the article, highlighting a few gaps that the top ranking pages don't focus on. And when I was seeing this example, it reminded me of when you took us through Tool of the Week a month or two ago, Market Muse, yeah. Martin. And it's, for obvious reasons, nowhere near as usable and sophisticated as Market Muse. But as a tool you can, in essence, as I understand it, use for free within um, within the uh, ChatGPT interface. Although we should check because you might have to have a... Uh, you might have to have a, um, a login for WebPilot as well, I can imagine, but we can look into that. I've tried that plugin and there's no restriction on it as far as I can see. Lovely stuff. Um, so three pretty cool applications there of plugins and many more to come, I'm sure. So go and have a play with those. And um, if you come up with anything else cool, of course, we would love to hear about it. We've also been playing with it a bit ourselves. You've been playing with it, haven't you, mind? What have you been up to? Yeah, so there was, as well as the actual plugins, they also announced this week the web browsing capability in beta itself. So whereas there is WebPilot, which is a plugin, ChatGPT now has its own web browsing capability that isn't a plugin, but does need turning on in the same settings section. Um, so I thought I would, you know, it, it, I don't know if I've uh, told you, but Derby County got knocked out of, uh, well, didn't get into the playoffs uh, this year. So this, our season ended early. And as such, I'm left looking for Derby County news that is, uh, you know, non-match day related. Things like player transfers and such like that. So typically trying to find any news around that requires crawling the forums, browsing Twitter. And I thought I can't be bothered with any of that. So instead, I will ask the web browsing functionality on ChatGPT to tell me, gather any latest transfer rumors for my beloved Derby County. And it did exactly that. It went out and crawled the uh, crawled the web and brought back uh, a really good summary, actually. So it said Derby County has been linked with several players recently, and then it gives me one, two, three, four, five uh, players that we've been linked with. And with each one, it tells me who they are and a kind of summary of uh, you know the position and the, the news around them. Now, the interesting thing was with this, each one of those stories, and you get this with the web browsing model of ChatGPT, but not with WebPilot. So it actually links you to the story. With WebPilot, I didn't, I don't remember actually having links to the to the stories. Um, so I read these story. I read I read this and then clicked on one of the links and it took me through to this um, football transfer rumor website and actually I posted a screenshot of it on Twitter um, if you want to check it out and the interface on this website was atrocious. It was there were so many adverts. It was I was being pelted with adverts left, right, and center. There is literally on my screen about four lines of copy and the rest of the screen is adverts overlaid with adverts 
with more adverts overlaid on those. It's an absolute mess of a user experience. Yet I avoided all of that using this web browsing feature that just went on, did the crawling for me and brought the results back. And it made me think, ooh, that's going to impact a lot of publishers. Mm. I mean, there's so many great things in that. Firstly, I get so many messages, people asking me, what's going on with Derby County? Finally, they have the information that they need. So thank you. I think that if you looked at our subscriber base, about half of them are Derby County fans and then the other half are marketers interested in AI. The other thing is, I suspect these tools, these tools may still be somewhat prone to hallucination. I think it's unlikely that you're going to be signing Messi and Ronaldo. I know that's what it said in the output mine, but you should definitely double check the sources on those. And yes, as we've talked about before, how will people access information on the web as these tools become the mainstay of how we of how we do things at our computers and on our phones and I guess eventually in VR and AR and yeah, if we can just get the information easier and you don't have to fight pop-up central, you're going to as well, right? So yeah, absolutely fascinating. I think one of the things I've noticed from playing with the tool and I found myself sort of replicating some of the things you talked about a couple of weeks ago, Martin. So I've made the move to Edge now and I've in my sidebar, I've got Bing, I've got ChatGPT and I've got Bard and I can basically very quickly run the same query through all three tools. And whilst I love the power that you get with the plugins, my goodness, it is slow. Mm, it is significantly it really is. slower than the other tools. And so when I need an answer quickly, I'm going to Bing or to Bard. And if I want to do something where I feel like the request is kind of a bit complicated or taps into one of those more power, not more powerful, but more non-browser based plugins, then I'll push it through ChatGPT. So this is maybe the first indicator, at least for me, of how as these tools mature, a lot of the things that underpin good UX as users, we're going to probably have a, be giving them a little bit less license, right? Like if it's slow, like how when web pages that you load are slow, you're like, right, I haven't got eight seconds to wait for this to load. I'm going to go just read a different source instead. And we may just see that start to differentiate which tool you go to, maybe in general or for different use cases like I've described. The other thing is I think it highlights some of the interesting and powerful work that's happening in the open source community at the moment, trying to figure out how do you create a large language model that can deliver quality outputs at GPT-4 level, but with a much smaller model trained with much fewer parameters and much simpler weightings and all those other things, the likes of which would be fast. And as we've talked about previously, fast enough to run natively on a phone or even on as some people have shown on something like Raspberry Pi. And that need for speed is actually probably not just going to be a, something the open source community thinks is a cool experiment. And I'm sure they're not the only people who think that, obviously, but actually could end up being quite a commercial driver in terms of reducing the costs and computation required to offer these tools, but just making a great fast user experience. Yeah. Watch this space for when Apple launches, eh? Indeed. In fact, I can't wait because they're conferences in june and i want to see this uh vrar headset they've been toiling away on to see if it's the car crash that some stories will tell you that everybody 
inside Apple thinks this is a terrible idea and we should never launch it, or a few of the stories that are popping up that are suggesting that it might actually be quite cool, including the um, the um, founder of uh, Oculus who went on Twitter and basically implied it's absolutely awesome. So, oh, can't wait to see. Anyway, I digress and we need to respect our lovely list this time. So we'll move on. Last couple of bits and pieces then, everyone. Um, first of all, we are going to hear from, as I talked about at the beginning, Liam Lally, who is a PPC expert. Um, for those of you who haven't listened to last week's uh, episode yet, we were talking, Martin and I, about um, Meta uh, releasing some AI-enabled tools to imp- to help uh, advertisers get better results and create new ad formats automatically and all this type of stuff. And that got us into a discussion about the pros and cons of using automation in your pay-per-click advertising strategy and the different perspectives that people have in the market, especially PPC specialists, about the power of AI versus uh, an automation versus actually those tools just being something that Google and Meta can use to get you to spend more money, basically. So we had a really good debate about that. And then we invited other experts who probably know more about it than we do to share their thoughts. And that is what Liam did. So we're going to um, we're gonna go to Liam in a minute. I think Martin and I were left with the idea that automation could be powerful, but only in the hands of an expert and the human in the loop and someone managing this process was critical. Uh, and then I think Liam's done a really fantastic job, a job of giving us some deeper insights there and um, really giving us a feel for where he feels automation sits and what to watch out for. So over to you, Liam. Hi, it's Liam from Saddle. Um, I'm a, I'm a, well, I'm a PPC manager. Um, I was listening to your discussion about the algorithmic ad managers. I think you were talking about firms Mox, uh, Mox Max and uh, Advantage Plus, and I thought I would just chip in because uh, I've got quite a few thoughts on this one. So um, with regards to Performance Max, um, I think it was, I can't remember, it wasn't the thing that, that mentioned they thought it was the future of advertising for, for, for some businesses. Um, I think one of the uh, issues that some of us have got that have been uh, doing this is that there is no denying that sometimes we turn a, a shopping campaign into a performance max campaign um, in the same way as previously we would have we would have gone from a, a shopping campaign to what used to be called a smart shopping campaign and they will perform well the, not all of them but I think that the I think my caveat with some of this is, the data, you have to have a huge amount of data for this to work out really well. And I think some of the people that kind of get on and say, this is what you should be doing all the time and you should be auto-applying all recommendations given to you by all of these platforms. I think if you're a huge brand with huge budgets, I think you can get away with it because I think that that data uh, is collected quicker. I think for SMEs and smaller businesses, um, I think that there has to be more uh, hesitation over that. And I'll come on to that in a second. So, for example, if we put some performance max campaigns together for our clients, then we have, and this is this is coming in. So, in theory, we have no control over things like uh, branded searches. So, people physically looking for the client anyway, shopping ad comes up, they click on that, they go through and they buy. Or if this if this is performance max, then 
clicking on a display ad or a video clip or whatever it is where they've decided to put it. Now, you can, uh, uh, you're beginning to have the ability to be able to exclude branded searches. So it'll be interesting to see how Performance Max changes. But just to put it into context, I just want to give you some figures because I, I work on figures. So if I said we have a client that's just spent 22 grand uh, in the last 30 days and they've had a conversion value of a thousand and fifty-four, a thousand, a million, uh, one million pounds and uh, fifty-four thousand nine hundred sixty-six pounds worth of revenue. That sounds amazing. That sounds and it is amazing. It's fantastic. If I then turn around and say they've got some branded search ads that they can then uh, monitor and make sure that what's going on with them, and within all of those totals that I've just given you, they've spent one hundred and eighty-five pound on their branded ads and they've had £243,000 worth of sales. So my issue with performance backs isn't necessarily the uh, AI and all the other stuff around it, it's the fact that so much is hidden and we're not able to actually see what impact those, because if you think of some of those other campaigns, we've then got every single campaign could be uh, looking like it's amazing because it's actually triggering for branded. And when you look at those kind of figures, then it's very easy to see how the final results can be warped. My final point on machine learning and an AI and things like that in Google, often people are, are um, I don't want to say recommended, but they're suggested to them that they will turn on Google's auto-apply recommendations. And when I have seen companies do this, generally everything goes south. Now, again, I think some of this is down to huge amounts of data. I think some of this could be down to set up uh, a little bit. But actually, um, if I look at some of the campaigns we've run across multiple clients, so we're talking hundreds, hundred plus clients, when we've implemented some of the uh, automated smart bidding, as they would call it, it's done the polar opposite of what you wanted it to do. And 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 the response that we've gone got gone got back has been, oh, you should let it run for longer. And I think one of the issues for a lot of SMEs is we don't have budgets to be able to run something for six months to see if it works. It tends to be far shorter periods. So does performance max work? Uh yes, in on on certainly looks like it works in some cases. I've also had clients where it hasn't worked at all. It seems to get, it seems to go downhill very quickly when it hasn't got enough um, conversions coming through. So I've seen campaigns literally fall over a cliff and take three months to get back online. With it all, um, I'm worried about the transparency of it. Um, and therefore, um, we've always had the transparency. And I think when you look at Pmax for Google, if you look at Advantage Plus to an extent for uh, Facebook, then we're getting to a point where we're getting less and less visibility. And with less and less visibility, that worries me. So a really big thank thanks there to you, Liam, for sharing that with us. If you're a listener uh, to the podcast and we touch on a topic that you're an expert in or something that you're passionate about and you want to come on, please let us know. We'd love to have you on you can come in and join uh, our conversation like me and mine are having today. You can record an audio snippet and send it to us however you want to do it. We would love to hear from you. Right, last little bit. 
we're going to look at tool of the week and tool of the week this week is jenny and martin you've been having a play with this voice generation tool tell us what you've learned so jenny is a tool from a company called lovo uh, l-o-v-o lovo.ai and it is as you've suggested uh, a voice generation tool hence the name jenny jenny is in generative so it's g-e-n-n-y and it's a really interesting interface when you see it for the first time you go oh, wow this is a proper audio editing system now the way that it works is that you can uh, input your text uh, from a script it breaks it down into paragraphs for you uh, and then you can go through your script selecting each section and assigning one of the voices to it and there are many many voices to choose from uh, more than I uh, care to count actually um, and you've got voices from all over the world and they're tagged by things like uh, English American English GB uh, then they've got things like uh, young adult education entertainment marketing all these different use cases uh, are in the mix if you want something from uh, a global uh, or if you want a global voice international voice you've got that as well you can actually look at different languages everything from Afrikaans right down to uh, Welsh and Zulu and Uzbek and, and everything in between. Uh, you can choose the age range of the speaker. So it's got a lot of customization in there. Uh, in fact, you can even customize things like pronunciation. So if there's a word that uh, is written in your script but just sounds weird when you generate it, you can actually type in a new pronunciation for that word. And then every time the word appears in the script, the AI will know to say it in the uh, in the correct way there's more controls in this as well so we were playing around and you can touch on things like emphasis on a particular word you can increase the uh, the speed at which one of the sentences or paragraphs is spoken and you can even change the the pitch as well and the good thing is that you can actually do it um with multiple speakers so you don't just have to have one speaker throughout just creating one voice so you can run it as a dialogue as well, which makes it uh, quite a quite a powerful tool to to play with. Actually, it's not just a very kind of static one tone, one voiceover. Which I think there's quite a few tools out there that will do one single voice if you give it some text. I think this is a real differentiator. In fact, the audio editing on here will allow you to add sound effects and background tracks as well. So it does have some more uh, powerful. Uh, audio editing capabilities beyond that as well in terms of use cases you can use it for anything like podcasts for instance i imagine podcasters might want to do audio intros and outros and things like that uh, i actually was i've had the subscription to this for a while i don't really use it that often but i was reminded of it when i went to a, a client's offices the other day and someone in the office mentioned that they needed to re-record the telephone message on there you know press one for such and such press two for such and such um apparently there were some new options or something they needed to re-record it and it was one of those where no one in the office wanted to do it everyone was like uh i'm not really got the voice for it and i thought oh you could use you could use this tool and i showed off jenny to them for that particular use case so we've actually got an example of it hopefully this comes through okay uh, I'm sure it will because if if it doesn't work in this live presentation version, Paul 
will edit it in, I'm sure. But this is um, a, a version, it's about a minute long, where I got Google's Bard to write a script talking about generative AI and audio generative AI specifically. And uh, we're going to hear that in two different voices now. Hello, everyone. My name is Bard, and I'm a large language model from Google AI. I am here today to talk to you about generative AI, and specifically about audio generation. Generative AI is a type of artificial intelligence that can create new content, such as text, images, and music. Audio generation is a specific type of generative AI that can create new audio content. Audio generation can be used for a variety of purposes, such as creating music, audiobooks, and podcasts. Really interesting stuff there, Mine. Compared to some of the other tools we've played with, some of the cadence of speech is so much more natural um, when the second speaker says text, images, and music, right? Which is much more like a human would say, like a human presenter on a radio show versus like text, images, and music without any sort of variance. And yet, in the next sentence, she says generative AI in a slightly weird way that a human would never do. So we're we're getting so much closer to something that sounds straight off the bat like a human could have done it with just a few more, still a couple of telltales in there that it's uh, that it's AI generated. Yeah, and I would say actually in uh, Jenny's defense there, we knock this up in seconds and you can edit the script to get those little details just right. You know, this was right. basically zero editing. So we could change the pronunciation of, of AI. We could add a pause. There are quite, like I say, some some quite uh, impressive bits of fine-tuning control on there. Pretty cool. Um, yeah, I think as regular listeners will know, when we put together the podcast, we had the intros and the outros generated by AI. So the lovely person who speaks at the beginning and at the end is not a real person, I'm afraid. Um, but we had very little control in the tool we used at the time. I can't even remember what it was to control cadence uh, and how it was pronounced. So this is a really interesting step in terms of greater sophistication. I can see that being super valuable when you really want to invest quite a lot of time and effort into getting it just right. And hopefully the tools will get better at predicting what sort of changes someone would make in order to get that effect. If you were going to do this at scale and you're just creating quite a lot of content, like if you wanted someone to narrate every one of your blog posts on your website so that those who were visually impaired could listen to them, or if people who were on the go wanted to listen to your content instead of read it, um, I'm sure that you probably wouldn't get the ROI of going through and absolutely making sure every single one of those was on the nose. Um, but actually can still do a pretty good job regardless and certainly very um, legible is the wrong word, I guess, very easy to understand. There's no parts there where you didn't really realize what the person was saying. And I've got a, a, an ebook reader on my phone that has a text-to-speech synthesis built into it that just used the standard Google or Samsung one. And you can't really listen to a book like it's an audio book, right? It's a bit jarring. And every now and again, you can't quite understand because two sentences get smashed together or a word gets completely mispronounced. And it would sound like this is going to hope over overcome quite a lot of those issues for people looking to make it so that their content can be listened to instead of just read. 
Cool. So that was tool of the week this week. Um, thank you, Martin, for telling us about Jenny. If you're interested in synthesizing audio, please do let us know. We hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. If you have, please subscribe. Tell your marketing friends to subscribe as well. If you've got any thoughts on anything we've discussed, or if you want to come on the podcast or send a snippet, hit us up on the LinkedIn or the Twitters. Our Twitter handle is AI Marketing Pod, all one word. Hurrah! We got the Twitter handle right first time, and I promise you, dear listener, that's not because Martin is screen sharing and showing me Twitter as I read that out. Uh, yeah, he actually is, but it's nice to get it right for once. Um, we would love to hear from you. Thanks very much for joining us again, and we'll speak to you all soon, I'm sure. Thank you, Martin. Cheers, Paul. See you next week, and thanks for listening, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Artificially Intelligent Marketing. To stay on top of the latest trends, tips, and tools in the world of marketing AI, be sure to subscribe. We look forward to seeing you again next week.